Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. Dog-loving, prize-winning, beer-brewing Italian scouser Thea Lenarduzzi is here as well. Thea, hello. Hello, I am a concatenation of hyphenates. I love the word concatenation. <laughs> it's a good word, isn't it? It, it is a good word. How's Alf? Um, he's he's fine. He's he's out for his his second daily constitutional. Oh, it's a lovely life, isn't it? Now, it's a lovely life. I mention him because, as expected, listeners to this <laughs> podcast have delivered with more literary pets. Are you ready? I'm ready. Mike Gunnison from Catter has said he'd be greatly saddened if he didn't share his literary pet's name, Kenilworth. And the reference is to Walter Scott's romance. And he Mike thinks that Scott would have called his dog that name. Kenilworth, great name. Meanwhile, I had a lovely email from Patricia Camilleri from Malta. She's been using lockdown to listen to audiobooks and get through some classics. Middlemarch, Of Human Bondage, several Henry James novels and the two Jane Austen books she'd not got to. But her mum, she tells us, went for historical or classical pet names. Salome, Hannibal. Cassandra, Jason, Romulus and Remus, our long-lived budgerigar was called Icarus, and a tortoise called Methuselah. I love the idea of having two dogs. If I had another dog that was like Alf, they'd be perfect to be Romulus and Remus. Romulus and Remus are great really names, aren't they? Yeah. And you know this new cat that I'm getting? It's two. We might, have, we might have argued them down to one now, actually, for my children. But he wants to call it Boudica. Oh, yeah, you said. That's good, isn't it? Um... <laughs> You don't have to say yes or no to that. No, uh, no, to- I do. I think it's, I think it's brilliant, Stig. Yeah, I think it's you, wonderful. I've got more. I've got more <laughs> literary pet names. Oh, kind of. Nicomo's tweeted that a friend of his father's. We're getting quite distant from people now, yeah, which I do are. like. He had two cats called Gorgon and Zola, which combines the four relevant parts of this podcast. Pets, classics, literature and cheese. Perfect. Meanwhile, Willa Davy wants to keep with themes of literary pets and food as well as the subtopic within the latter of beans <laughs> we're gonna have to start kind of itemizing this, uh, this more is so good. Yeah, rigorously so, so this is food literary pets and your love-hate relationship with beans our cat <laughs> is named dangerous beans after one of the protagonists in terry pratchett's the amazing morris and his educated rodents <laughs> which is great i've got two more two more <laughs> 
David Moore has tweeted a picture of Rosalind, a fine hen, although named after the American actress Rosalind Russell, not after Shakespeare's arguably greatest female. So I got a picture of chicken, a chicken in my inbox, which I liked. And then finally, Carolina Cosmine has a 14-year-old corgi called Chance, a.k.a. Chauncey Gardner, after the Jersey Kaczynski classic being there. Had you heard of that, Thea? Do you know? No. So it's a, no. It's, it's, a, it's a novel and a movie. It's quite a, it's quite a major movie, and it's about a guy who's a sort of a simple figure uh, called Chance, and he ends up becoming president of America. So it sounded a bit Forrest Gumpy to me. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so that's Chance. He's a blind 14-year-old corgi, but has a cult-like minor sleb following here in Gross Point, Michigan. Oh, bless him. Uh, so there we go. <laughs> Do keep them coming. Your lockdown <laughs> reading or eating and, of course, literary pets. I kind of, this is what I always thought I'd get into broadcasting to do. Exactly. Literary pets. Is a, is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sweet spot. Uh, do tweet us at the TLS, at StigAble, at Thea underscore Lenarducci, or you can always email me at stig.able at the-tls.co.uk. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to hear from you all. Uh, make sure you do take advantage of listening to us to subscribe cheaply to the TLS. All you need to do is use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. The best price anywhere on the internet. I've been saying it's five issues for £5 or $5. It's actually six issues for £5 or $5, which is even better. Coming up this week, it's the 75th anniversary of VE Day, so we've got quite a lot of historical stuff in the paper, and we thought we'd ask our favourite historian and the author of books we shamelessly puff on the podcast, David Horsball, to talk us through it. Ian Baruma has written about the Italian fascist and fabulist Curzio Malaparte. How's that, Thea? It's pronunciation. Lovely. Who lived in Paris? Who was he? Ian will tell us. And I should say, just speaking of emails, I had a lovely one from an epidemiologist, which as we know I can't say, and public (laughs) health doctor, Douglas Shenson, who said he loves the podcast, but also, while I have your attention, may I put in a request for a little more attention to European themes and literature? Douglas, this is for you. And one of life's mysteries to me, but not, of course, to Lucy Dallas, if you recall, is gardening. Sue Stewart-Smith has a new book out called The Well-Gardened Mind, which we are running an extract from this week. She will explain the concept of horticultural therapy. This is likely to smack of lazy broadcasting. I genuinely cannot think of a better way to introduce listeners to the strange figure that was Curzio Malaparte than to read almost in its entirety the opening paragraph of Ian Baruma's review of a new edition of Malaparte's journals written in the late 1940s. Curzio Malaparte, Italian fascist, Maoist, fabulist, dandy, diplomat, dog worshipper, aesthete, journalist, novelist, filmmaker was a very odd cove. He was a famous womanizer, whose sexuality was, however, peculiar. He wouldn't sleep with anyone after the act was concluded, usually very swiftly. He spent hours every morning grooming himself, shaving off all his bodily hair, even from the back of his hands, and slept with a slab of raw beef held to his cheek to stave off wrinkles. I said it was worth reading out. <laughs> so, so um, yes, myths, peculiarities, a certain two-facedness abound when it comes to Malaparte. He was, to put it lightly, though he would probably much rather have it put darkly, a very complicated man, intensely, passionately ambivalent about many things. 
Here to help us build a firmer understanding of the man and his work then is Ian Baruma. Hello, Ian. Hello. Hello. Um, let's start with Malaparte's birth. He was not born Malaparte, but he was born in, in Prato in Tuscany in 1898, because to a degree, much of what follows can sort of be framed as a, a reaction to these early circumstances, you suggest. Well, his, his, yes, as you say, um, um, his father was a German and, and he was called Kurt Zuckert, but uh, he was anything but German, really. I mean, he was very much an Italian and his mother was Italian and he grew up in Italy. It's hard to say. I mean, one has to be careful not to become a pop psychologist and say that um, his weirdness all goes back to being half German. A lot of the, the, his makeup goes back perhaps to the war fought against the Germans and the Austrians in his, in his case. Um, and people forget that Italy was, um, didn't have to be a participant in World War I, but uh, its government foolishly got Italy involved and fought some very, very bloody battles um, in the Dolomites and elsewhere. And um, uh, Sukkot, or Malaparte as he later became, was very much in the thick of it. And like many people of his generation, I think uh, the horrors of World War I really... Italy was kind of propelled into that, that First World War, as you, as you say, in 1915, largely down to Gabriele D'Annunzio. And it seems that Malaparte really cast himself in that kind of D'Annunzian male mode, a kind of war-loving loving and vigorous young man, at least to a degree. Is that, is that so? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Um, D'Annunzio would like to very much uh, um, like to have heard you say that he was the one who got Italy uh, involved. He certainly was 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 a propagandist for it, but it was the government that was um, uh, responsible. Uh, but yes, I think Malaparte was in that mould. Um, of course, it's it's a particular type that you find amongst writers in many places in many periods. I mean, writing is a solitary and very pacific activity. You have to sit in your, 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 your study and um, there's no action involved except what goes on in your head. And with some writers that leads to a frustration that they want to be men of action. And um, this can take place in your own imagination. It can, in some cases, um, it leads to sort of weird adventurism. Um, the oh, Japanese but... novelist uh, Mishima is a very good example of this. I mean, who became a kind of fantasy samurai and, um, and died a samurai's death. And I think Malaparte, like D'Annunzio, had that sense that, uh, that he was a man of action. Hemingway might be another example of a, of a figure sort of loafing around 1920s Europe with, with a similar attitude, perhaps. Very much so. I think Hemingway was very much um, in that mould. But the one that I think is closest to, to Malaparte actually was a German, and that's Ernst Jünger, um, who fought on the German side um, uh, in World War I as a soldier and became a kind of fascist in the 1920s and 30s. Um, would have been a Nazi, except that he found the Nazis vulgar. <laughs> and um, so he took a certain sort of snobbish uh, distance from them. But otherwise, he shared with, with Malaparte that sort of complete contempt for what they would have seen as bourgeois society and bourgeois liberalism and, and bourgeois hopes and so on. They'd seen the worst, that, uh, or the worst kind of violence that uh, soldiers are capable of and um, felt 
that um, anything more specific was sort of an absurd illusion. And Malaparte looked to kind of build on on his experience of war, and but to build his personality and to kind of propagate the politics. He was talking about the anti-bourgeois um, attitude, the, the kind of the idea that things were becoming, everything was becoming degraded through a series of um, important magazines and newspapers that he was involved in in, in editing or even founding. Um, there was Novecento in the late 1920s, I think it was. But how um, how important a figure was he? What was his impact then in the kind of the 1920s after the war? I doubt that his influence was tremendously profound. I mean, he was not a profound political thinker. He had attitudes, but the main attitude was anti-liberal. And so it's not for nothing that he, who'd been a fascist um, after the war, had become an enthusiastic communist. And um, at, at the end of his life, uh, a kind of worshipper of, Mao, of Chairman Mao. And so anything but liberal. And again, I, I can think of a, um, a, another example of this. There was, there was a, a lawyer in, in, in Paris called Jacques Vergès, who was the lawyer for Klaus Barbie, the, the Gestapo chief in Lyon during the Barbie trial. And he wrote a, a, a book and he once said, the most contemptible form of politics is social democracy. It's the, that sort of uh, degraded, mediocre, bourgeois politics. Whereas Stalin and Hitler, they had grandeur. And I think that's a particular kind of anti-liberal thinking that was popular um, in the first half of the, of the 20th century with, of course, terrible consequences. But to say that these writers Jünger, uh, Malaparte, and so on, that they created Mussolini and Hitler and so on, I think would be a mistake because it, it, it gives writers too much credit in a way. But they did help to produce a certain mood which uh, made it easier for these dictators to come to power. Uh, Malaparte did have a relationship with Mussolini, though, didn't he? It was quite a, a, a troubled one, it seems. I mean, he was clearly an admirer. And he was there on the, on the march on Rome and, and so on. And uh, clearly he, he, he did admire him. But he was also, he had a satirical streak. He was a troublemaker. He couldn't help himself. And so one of the famous anecdotes about him is that Mussolini asked him to come to his office one day in Rome. And um, there he was in that vast office with an enormous desk behind which the Duce sat and um, Malaparte was then told by the Duce that um, he really had to turn down his, 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 his criticisms of the leader. And um, uh, he was particularly vexed, uh, Mussolini was, that Malaparte criticised his taste in neckwear. Malaparte um, was contrite and said and, and apologised, turned round and said goodbye, and then turned round again to this great desk and said, but the tie you're wearing today is still disgusting. Which is quite a brave thing to do. I mean, that's not, that's not lacking in a certain bravery, is it? Um, yeah, I think uh, that is true. Except I think he probably reckoned that his relationship with Mussolini was, was strong enough that he could get yeah. away with it. Although later, um, he didn't get away with uh, criticising uh, a famous public figure in, uh, in Italy and, and in fact ended up in jail. That was Italo Balbo. That was, yeah, the great pilot, the Lindbergh yeah. of, of fascist Italy. 
And um, in the early 40s, he was sent to the Eastern Front, though. He was obviously still a trusted and, and respected figure by this point. He was sent to the Eastern Front as a correspondent for the Corriere. Uh, and later, he was post-Allied invasion, he was posted to Naples. From both of these experiences emerge his, his two best works. They're sort of sibling pieces. But let's start with Caput. Um, I haven't read it. In, I read it about 15 years ago. I almost don't think I could read it again. Um, What makes it such a remarkable work, do you think? Well, in a word, the writing. I mean, he was a very, very good writer who could really, who could tell stories very vividly and and as though you're there. And he had a a great eye for detail and and so on. And he was a bit like uh, um, the the, the Polish... um, journalist, writer, Richard Kapuscinski in that way, who, who was also completely unreliable um, as, as far as truth is concerned, but a great writer. They, they had both had the same gift to find a sort of poetic expression in their descriptions um, of, of things they saw or may have seen or imagined they'd seen. They knew how to give life to what they saw. And uh, so it's a descriptive power. It's a poetic was he a big figure for you here in Italy? Is he? Uh, yeah, he is a big Italian canon. He's a big, important figure. He's from a, a time where there were lots of big, important figures, uh, lots of them with dubious politics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of you see him as a swirling, you know, part of the parade there, and and the myth is the myth is massive as well, I suppose. But trying to think again about those two really important books, Caput and La Pelle, Skin. He was a writer, an incredible writer for. As you suggested, I think, Ian, you said incredible eye for detail and for, you know, it's not strictly reportage. It's for it's for embellishing in such a way as to give some kind of higher truth, I suppose he would say, or maybe not higher truth, but truer truth. That's not to everyone's taste, I guess, but it, was, it makes for great set pieces, I think, I think. Yes. I mean, the parallel in filmmaking is Werner Herzog. Yes, who, exactly. Uh, in his true. documentaries um, where he does invent things. And he always speaks with great contempt of cinema verite, of, of mm. documentaries that pretend to be completely factual. And he calls that the accountant's truth, whereas Werner <laughs> Herzog is, is the man of the poetic truth. Yeah, the ecstatic uh, and, uh, truth. The ecstatic truth, that's right. Yeah. And yeah. um, and uh, is very much a man of the ecstatic, ecstatic truth. One should also not forget, I mean, when you talk about his fascism, there is a big difference between Italian fascists and Nazis. And that there are very, I can't think of one um, great writer who would now be published by the New York Review of Books um, uh, who was a Nazi. Um, because uh, National Socialism, as it, as it existed in Germany, was the core of it was racism and anti Semitism and so on, which in itself is irredeemable. Whereas in Italy, certainly in the early days, in the 20s and 30s to some extent, Fascism was also to do with youth and modernity and the machine age. And, and mm. it had a strong idealistic component and it was not quite as vicious. It, it later became that, partly influenced by Germany, but it was not quite as vicious as the Nazis were from the beginning. Would Celine be an example of, would Celine get rehabilitated? I suppose I was just trying to think of another figure who has been condemned for, correctly, for, for really vile politics was also regarded as a as a as a good writer 
Well, he never needed to re be redeemed for the, the, for the best of his writing. There were two Selines. There was the Celine of his great novel, uh, which is not particular. I mean, it's very misanthropic, but it's not anti-Semitic or, or Nazi in any way. And then there's the Celine of, of his pamphlets, uh, which are completely uh, deplorable and horrible, uh, very anti-Semitic, violently so. And um, when I think it was Gallimard um, wanted to publish those pamphlets a year or two ago, um, this led to great protests and, and they had to stop it. But um, nobody would ever stop reading his novels because, um, you know, in, in his literary mode, um, he was not um, in any way odious. I'm not sure people always draw that distinction anymore, actually, in between um, a, a piece of art that may have no taint to it, but written by someone who is thoroughly tainted. I'm not sure the distinction is always kept as, as remote as that. You're absolutely right, but that's a very recent phenomenon. Um, I think that it's certainly in, in Celine's time, and still in France to a large extent, and particularly when it comes to Celine, um, uh, people do distinguish um, personal behaviour and personal beliefs from the work and if the work in itself is a value um the personality of the of the of the of the artist um is not the main concern but i totally agree that this has become particularly in the united states um a big issue and uh, in many ways i think a disturbing one well that may be the subject for an, another podcast in because uh, that's uh, to me that's one of the great issues to for us to all wrestle with all, all the time. Uh, I think we might have to leave it there though. Uh, thank you so much for 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 telling us the story of this of this great man. Thank you. Thanks Ian. Bye. Uh, I I love it when the you because you you know so much I mean because you're an Italian student of of Italian literature. So this guy's a major figure for you. Well it's interesting as well because I I've been recently, I've been reading a lot around this period, um, the fascist era, but before it became the fascism that that was the fascism of the Second World War. So kind of yeah. pre-racial laws of 38 uh, and especially in the 1920s around the time of the March on Rome. Yeah. Um, I just find it so interesting and so compelling how how the politics crept into people's lives and how there were different fascisms. There were degrees yeah. of fascism and phases of fascism. And so it, it doesn't help anyone or anything to be, you know, all or nothing about it. Did it jar then when I, because I, I sort of said a great man, I meant sort of great literary man, Malapart. Does that jar when I said that? Or would you say that it's an no, acceptable phrase? No, it doesn't. It doesn't jar. Um, because I, I mean, you mean it in terms of a, an influential, important figure, and I think he, I think he was, and I think he is. I think he's a really interesting way to to think about that period, and and you think about Gabriele D'Annunzio, and you know, Ian, Ian corrected me. It's true that we didn't go into the, Italy, didn't go into the First World War because of D'Annunzio, and yet he was an important, important part of preparing the Italian people's psyche for war. Um, and for everything that followed, really. So, uh, yeah, I think I think Malaparte is a really is a really important figure. He's a he's a he's a, a document to be excavated. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed learning more about him just then. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sue Stewart-Smith is a woman of many talents. She was an English student who became a successful doctor and psychiatrist, and she also has a keen interest in gardening. They've all come together in her new best-selling book, The Well-Gardened Mind, which we are carrying an extract from in the TLS this week. In it, she makes the case for the need to return to nature as a means of us living better, happier, and healthier lives. A message never more needed, but perhaps never more tragic than during our current lockdown. In the passage we publish, Sue looks back to the first First World War and finds many examples of horticultural therapy. Warfare, she says, and gardening are in many ways the opposite of each other. It's a fascinating statement and I'm delighted to say that Sue is with us now. Hello Sue, many congratulations on the book. Hello and thank you very much. Yes, um, the book has taken off rather quickly actually and in an amazing way. I mean it surprised me enormously. Well, it's, lovely, it's a lovely surprise to have. Um, let's, let's, before we talk about the sort of the broader reception and the broader issues, I do think that, that sentence I just quoted is, is, is extremely interesting. What, what made you contrast the idea of, of war and gardening? It's there at the very beginning of the book in my grandfather's story. Um, he was a prisoner of war in Turkey for the whole of the, whole of the First World War after he was captured in uh, April 1915. It was through gardening. I mean, he, he was lucky to survive. Uh, and it was only really through horticulture that he was able to kind of recover his peace of mind, I think, carry on a, a, a sort of productive life and a happy, a reasonably happy life, you know, contented life, and, and developed a love of gardening. So it was there from the very 
beginning, but it was when I started to look into it, I realized sort of how deep that contrast goes, really, and the idea that um, you know, if you go right back to the ancient Persian kings, they, they held them in kind of balance, you know, gardening or husbandry on the one hand and the arts of war conquering other people, as it were, or other lands on the other. So I think it does, it, it reflects the twin poles of our nature, the sort of creative, peaceful aspects versus our more aggressive, destructive tendencies. They do balance each other out in some way. And in practical therapeutic, do you regard it as therapy? Uh, actually, it does something to the mind, to the state of mind when people are is it just a flow activity that's also pretty or is it is there something more substantive than that? I think the important thing about um, gardening is it works on so many different levels at once. So, for example, for people recovering from any kind of trauma, but particularly from um, war trauma and PTSD, who've experienced a lot of destruction, uh, you know, the feeling of safety in nature and the physiological calming effects of nature is incredibly important at a very basic level but the the symbolic meaning of what you're doing um you know bringing new life into the world working with working with the life force actually the fundamental life force that is what sustains all life uh on on earth um that is that is an incredibly important part of it too so it's, it sort of helps repair the mind on all sorts of levels and you paid a picture of um which I found very striking of that we've all got our mind, the First World War trenches, these sort of very grim, miserable, bleak, rainy, rat infested places of, of sort of death and, and, and sort of slow despair. But even there, people, people grew gardens, didn't they? Yes. You know, the nature of trench warfare made it possible because there were quite long interludes and, and people were waiting for the next action, but still on the, on the front lines. Um, and many of these gardens were right, right behind the trenches on the front lines. Some of them were behind the lines. But, you know, the beauty of nature, not just through gardening, actually, but the beauty of nature around them was incredibly sustaining and important. Soldiers wrote home for seeds. Um, they raided plants and flowers from gardens. You know, some of the trenches were dug through, through village gardens, as it were, and... So they transplanted um, uh, plants. It was very important in, I think, maintaining a sense of their humanity at a fundamental level in the face of really the most appalling um, destruction that they were having to live, live through and try and survive through. It reminds me a lot of um, when I was doing my, my thesis at my MA. During my MA, I, I focused on the First World War and experience is of food in the First World War. And what you say about gardening seems to have performed a quite similar role to the kind of the ceremony, the ritual of, of having a cup of tea and a biscuit. It was almost like a civilising influence, a, a, a way of feeling like normal life was still going on. I think that that's, that's right. And I think that's, that's one, of the, you know, one of the aspects that is making people now turn towards their gardens as well. Um, is our, you know, our feeling that the human world is in, has been thrown into a lot of uncertainty and chaos and, and unhappiness. Yet the na nature is, you know, we can still carry out the same rituals. Nature's not perturbed by what we're going through. You know, the flowers are, it's spring, so we've got everything happening. And 
the seeds that will be germinating. That, 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 that side of life is carrying on as normal. But there's a kind of bleaker corollary to that, I suppose, when we're thinking about coronavirus, because for people who live in the countryside or live uh, with a garden, there's this ready-made therapy at their doorsteps. But what do you feel that there is a serious potential impact for people stuck in flats, stuck in urban places where there is no um, relief of a, of, of a garden? Does that concern you that as people are immured in their houses, that's, that's, that's a pressing worry, isn't it? It's a big concern, I, I agree. And I think it has absolutely thrown up that, that disparity between people who have, you know, even as even a small patch of garden is, is a great sanctuary at times like this. So I think it is. I think for the most part, we've been able, unlike places like Italy, for instance, where people literally have not been able to leave the house, people have been able to go out and exercise and go to the parks. And I think that's really good that that's we've managed to maintain that. And do you have a broader thesis? Because, I mean, you, you didn't write this book with coronavirus in mind. It was written before that. Uh, but just generally, is there an argument that, is this a, there a call to action here that we've taken nature too much for granted, that we've ignored it, our, our peril, and there are steps that we can take? Or um, is, there, is there a message that's, sort of, that's coming through your book, do you feel? Um, I think it is exactly that message in a way, yes, that we easily forget at a very basic level that we are simply part of nature. And I think what this, what this crisis is reminding us is, of is our vulnerability. When people have a breakdown or a trauma or a breathe and turn to nature for help, uh, it's because uh, nature's, nature's there and full of strength and regeneration. And that's, um, that's very sustaining to us. So I think at times of enormous vulnerability, that, that's, that's extremely important to be able to draw on that. My hope is that actually so many people rediscovering nature at the moment uh, might actually lead to a kind of recalibration of how we how we think about it and its and its place in our lives. Is, is that practical though? So I wonder. I mean, because in, up until this point, the, the the direction of travel felt ever more urban, ever more dislocated, ever more driven by technology. I mean, is there a, is there any sort of genuine hope that things will be recalibrated because the great fear we all have all the time whenever there's these big events we all think the world changes and very often the world sort of putters on in its its usual way there's a risk that nothing changes after after we come out of this of course there is but um i think it's such a such a huge uh unprecedented global event i think it's i think things will change i think life will be changed by it and we'll all be changed by it at some level um, I don't think it's, it's not, you know, one of, one of the examples I write about in the book is the incredible edible project at Todmorden, which is outside Manchester, where, you know, where, where grassroots gardening, radical gardening, uh, has just transformed the way the community functions and little bits of waste ground are now, you know, planted with herbs that anyone can help themselves to. And uh, one of the first things they did was plant up a, land outside a um, disused health centre that was just sort of had been, just been left, really abandoned, yet was quite set, placed quite centrally within the town. So I think it is about trying to think more creatively and, and not with what we've got, using what we've got and not being so driven to consume, I suppose, all the time. The incredible edible project and, and the gardening that you've, that you've described so far is all quite kind of community-driven and and gentle and kind and about feeling a part of nature. Is there, 
is there in gardening, is there a corner of it or a, a type of it that is a bit to do with control, do you think? A kind of quite benign way of playing God almost. I'm thinking of like really manicured gardens of the sort that I'd never really seen anywhere apart from in, in Britain. It's peculiarly British, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yes, I think historically, I mean, gardening is like any part of culture. It reflects, it reflects, uh, it reflects that culture. So I think at different different in different ages, varying degrees of sort of you know man's dominion over nature has certainly come into gardening. But I think what's exciting at the current time that we're living in is, is is gardening becoming something slightly different, which is more reparative and more around, for example, you know restoring biodiversity. So. You know, gardens have turned out to be really very, very bio, little hotspots, they've been called, of, of biodiversity, and often much, much richer than, than the surrounding countryside. I don't really... Can I, can I be honest, Sue, because uh, I don't really get the British love of, despite being British, and my parents, for example, they're, they're in their 70s. My mum is, is, isn't... She's one of these people that will be, have to be shielded for a long time. Um, but they do have a garden and all the, they, they're, they're furiously working on their garden every day and they look very healthy and they really enjoy it. But from an early age, I've always associated gardening with chores. I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to spend time digging up grass or cutting it or uh, pruning. I just don't. I, just, I can't see the pleasure in it at all. And <laughs> when, I hear, when I hear this stuff, and I know Thea is, I can just imagine Thea in her rural wilderness, you know, being this enthusiastic gardener <laughs> really in, touch not. With, in touch with nature. <laughs> I, I just can't. I just, where's the fun? What, what am I missing? What am I doing wrong? <laughs> this is all so heartfelt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I can hear it's very heartfelt. I mean, I started out as a real gardening skeptic. Um, you know, I, I just saw it as outdoor housework and, yeah. you know, it was slightly better if the sun was shining than being indoors. But um, so I think this, I think, I think it just depends on what type of gardening you do as well. Uh, you know, and everybody needs to find if they want to get into gardening, something that, that, um, that really motivates them or that excites them. Um, and I was like, that, I was maybe, like- that may be creating beauty. It may be, you know, I started growing herbs and and then moved on to vegetables and for me just the thrill of actually being able to bring something back into the kitchen and cook it you know yeah. was enough to to make me slog away <laughs> um uh digging and and weeding but then slowly i realized that actually you know um that many of those garden activities are actually they're they're very rhythmical and you can you can treat them a bit like a meditation um, yeah. You know, and, and, and actually, you know, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness at the moment. And, and gardening is one of those activities where if you open your senses while you're doing it and, uh, you know, let yourself really hear the birds and, you know, smell the soil, suddenly actually it is, it is very different from doing housework indoors in that way. All right, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. I was, I was all these kids that my parents used to shout, come out and, you know, enjoy, enjoy the garden. I'd be sitting reading a book inside on a summer's day. I, I need to sort of, I'll try, Sue. I'm going to give it a go. I'll give it a go. I, I've enjoyed reading your book as well, though. So I, I'm one of these people that probably rather read about it than do it. But that, that's a good start. I think that's fine, too, you know, yeah. because I, one of the points I make is that gardeners exist in the mind every bit as much as they do. Uh, in in the reality, you know, they they can be enormously important in memory, 
and in you know the symbolism of the garden is so important in sustaining us uh, throughout throughout history. You know, you look at right back to the ancient Egyptians and and beyond. The symbolism of the garden is 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 a very potent symbol. Well, you made me feel a bit better, Sue. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Bye bye. Thanks, Sue. Bye. So, you, sorry, Thea, are you saying you do garden? I I garden very 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 rarely. Um, my my kind of yeah. ideal is when I every now and again I'll buy a plant and I'll plant it. It will quite often die because then I'll forget to water it. Um, but sometimes there's just this pure joy where it just takes and it goes and it goes mad. Uh, and th- yeah. and that's not down to yeah. me at all. That's my favourite gardening is just letting stuff happen it's kind of just barely controlled entropy maybe pulling out like some ivy that's going to kill everything but apart from that just like letting it do its thing we've actually we've just um we've just succeeded in growing some kind of long grasses um and alf it's just his pure pleasure is something lovely to to behold he just runs out and kind of does roly polies in the long grass and it's just really nice (laughs) Now, as we know, David Horsepool has written several history books. Richard III, A Ruler and His Reputation, The English Rebel, Alfred the Great, or Why Alfred Burned the Cakes. There's two different titles for it, but he didn't burn the cakes, did he, David? Uh, Well, you'd have to read one of those two titles to find out. I don't want to give the ending away, but maybe maybe he did and maybe he didn't. Yeah, TLDR, he didn't. Uh, He probably didn't. There's There's no evidence that he did. No. All right. Well, that's the subject for another day. I guess they're all great books, as we all know, but they're not on the subject of the Second World War. So we thought we would stretch the history editor a bit this week to talk us through the history section of the paper, which is very much about the Second World War, not least because this week marks the 70th anniversary of VE Day. And David is, as you can hear, remotely with us now. David, hello. Hello there. Um, So VE Day, 75th anniversary. I was trying to work this out that would this have because they've moved a bank holiday in Britain from Monday to Friday and there was going to be street parties which thankfully have been cancelled my uh, street party is my idea of utter hell how big a deal was this going to be do you think as a, as one of the anniversaries of the second world war i should think it would have been a pretty big deal because um obviously as all these anniversaries have gone on people have realized that there won't be that many chances to have people who actually took part i mean there'll still be people who lived through it for quite a few more years but people who actually kind of played a role of any kind um in the war to kind of take part so there was going to be a veterans parade up the mall and various events in cardiff and edinburgh and belfast too so that won't happen and it would have been quite a big deal i think it was quite a big deal was it 10 years ago that um i suppose it would have been a bit longer ago there was another anniversary um and they had big sort of events in Hyde Park and St James's Park. I should think it would be just as big a thing this time. Do you know, when I was 15, this was in 1995, I went to the VE Day celebration in Loughborough, where I was, lived. And uh, this is a story that has no point whatsoever, David, I'm going to warn you now. Um, but I went to see the, they were doing a parachute display. And uh, I'd been standing near a girl who I didn't really know, but I'd been standing near her. And I think some of the local lads thought I had, w- was sort of talking to her. And anyway, I was looking up at the parachute 
falling down. And as I looked up, five guys just kicked me to the ground and started kicking me in a in a sort of patriotic fashion. It's <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, exactly. And uh, uh, it was awful. I was lying on the floor being kicked, and then this other guy who I didn't know, which was the, perhaps the spirit of the Blitz, ran in and scared them all away. And then I just sort of lay bleeding on the floor. So my, my association with VE Day was uh, being in Loughborough and being beaten up for standing too close to a group of girls who I didn't really even know. So there you go. I, I think I was about to complain that I think on that same anniversary, I was roped in by my mother-in-law to working on a stall in Hyde Park or St. James's Park. I can't even remember what we were doing, selling books or something. It's something very strange. But anyway, it's a lot more pleasant than what happened to you. <laughs> yeah. But there is a, the, the point that we keep coming back to all the time, I think, is the Second World War. Is It's this defining moment in British culture that has lived on. So we have these parades correctly. We remember the, the sort of the sacrifice, the victory over Nazis, and, and that's all t- t- well and good. But it's just, it's entered the very texture of our society, hasn't it, the Second World War, in a way that probably feels is a bit different in Britain you know the whole Brexit thing was saturated in second world war metaphors coronavirus as soon as it strikes it's immediately saturated in second world war metaphors it's it's a funny thing how it how it's continued to live in 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 our culture isn't it well there's a horrible feeling it was you know the last time anything went right for us which I don't think (laughs) is true but I think there is that sense around that this was this great national moment and of course for all its horrors for Britain, the Second World War just doesn't have that traumatic association, that same instant traumatic association that it does for so much of the rest of the world and for, you know, uh, our continental neighbours principally. It's just a different myth that we live with. And although people have been writing about how we've kind of fooled ourselves about the war and we tell ourselves all sorts of lies about our conduct in the war and how the war went and all the rest of it uh, for for years and years. We still got that sense that despite all that, we did actually get through it and we won it and people, you know, didn't give up and they didn't surrender. And so I suppose that is, you know, as much as one could be proud of anything, it seems a moment that's fair enough to be proud of. Do you find it odd, Thea, with, with being both British and Italian, to, do you, you must see the, the, the very clear distinction in, in the two reactions, with very different experiences of the war, of course. Yeah, totally. Well, I've been talking to my grandma quite a lot about um, about the period and about her experience of it. She was in, in the Friuli, and um, for her, the start of war really was September 1943, in a way, because before that, it hadn't really impacted on her life. I mean... The Germans were around and they were kind of controlling everything. And yes, her friends, many of them had had to flee because they were partisans or whatever. But it wasn't the same kind of all out war, I don't think, or not in her consciousness. And then when she says, and then we're invaded, my in my mind, we sort of I snapped her. Yes, then what the Germans invaded? And she was like, no, no, the Germans were already here. The Allies invaded. And I was like, oh, right, because yes, of course, you weren't on the right side at that time. (laughs) It can get quite confusing. (laughs) We call it liberation. <laughs> yeah. Well, of yeah. course, on April 25th, we just, we just had our, our Liberation Day uh, festival and the 28th was the day that Mussolini was um, unceremoniously strung up. So we have, our different, we, we have our different dates that we commemorate, yeah, and very different experiences. There was one thing I was thinking about, though, because 
First World War, the literature of the First World War in this country, really well established, the poetry especially, you, you can immediately make draw a connection. And I was thinking the Second World War, this great event in British cultural history. And it struck me that there wasn't, there isn't sort of great novels that have come out of it. No great fiction, in my mind, or iconic fiction. If I think of Second World War fiction, I think of Catch-22 or Slaughterhouse-Five or The Naked and the Dead. And I think of big American books. It's certainly true that that's what comes to mind, you know, in English language fiction, you would think of American novels first. You could put Evelyn War up against that, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, there are at least, I mean, there's a whole trilogy and a novel he wrote. You managed to write two novels during the war. A bit of, is there a bit of pole? Did pole is there a bit of pole, isn't there? But there's a pole trilogy part of the dance to the music of time are all in the war because he, he also fought in the war. So it isn't a, a huge uh, sort of canon of stuff. And in fact, when you begin to think about it, it's a sort of, the sort of lower, I mean, there's stuff, there's sort of home front things, Elizabeth Bowen or Graham Greene. Uh, it, it's actually more at the kind of slightly lower level of kind of more thrillerish stuff yeah. or... I mean, interesting, I, I had a look at this. Um, I didn't realise that C.S. Forrester wrote two naval novels during the war, one about the Bismarck, okay. and there's The Cruel Sea. So there are these things that were turned into films, great stories, but there isn't really, you know, a great novel, I don't think, I'd love someone to correct me, of The Battle of Britain. No, maybe, and maybe films, maybe films is the place that naturally, because of where the technology was, films play, became the place where where the stories were told. You know, the war movie is a Second World War movie. It's really, when you hear, in Britain at least, of war movies, you think of that, don't you? Yes, I think you do. Um, and some of, the, some of the great, great war movies are based on good books. So should we talk about, we've got a big piece, because this is also an anniversary of Dresden, uh, which is funny, because when I say Dresden in Britain, you think of, the, you don't think of the city as city. I think of it as the city as the target for bombs. It actually, we talk about American novels. It's the it's the setting for Slaughterhouse Five, as well, which I think Vonnegut was there when Dresden happened. I think. That's right. That, I mean, and we had um, we had it featured in our graphic novels issue yeah, we last did. week. So, what is the what is the resonance of Dresden now? If I say Dresden to most people, do they think of an act of unethical, brutal bombing? Do you feel? I think they do. Well, I suppose it's worth saying exactly what happened or, or in very rough terms what happened that in February 1945 there were, there were two days of massed Allied raids, first the RAF and then the uh, US Army Air Force. Thousands of bombers and thousands of tonnes of bombs were dropped on, on the city. And in fact, the numbers of dead... Since I've been doing this job, I've noticed them go down and down and down, the agreed numbers of dead. But, I mean, they're still extraordinary and horrifying. It's um, 25,000 people are thought to have died. That's really interesting, like how a number like that becomes revised down the years and gets smaller and smaller. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's quite common in... Um, in lots of areas of um, of history, that these that very big numbers get get put out and then get refined, but sometimes it goes in the opposite direction. But but often often in terms of battles, you always say like a medieval battle. Someone will say, and seventy thousand people were killed in a single day. 
because chroniclers kind of counted sort of one, two, three, seven thousand, and uh, <laughs> uh, and actually that that and that actually wasn't quite ever true. I mean, is it is it because it, it's more forensic thinking about it led to more realistic numbers? Is that is that the, the normal process? Well, in the case of Dresden, I I suspect it's because um, it is such a controversial case that uh, having the the bigger number makes it seem even more horrendous. Um, But, you know, 25,000 people dying in a uh, single raid is still pretty unimaginable to to us in peacetime. Is there a consensus now then, David, that I presume in various bullish periods of British military history, we were sort of, everyone said, well, this is just war, get, get on with it. The kind of contest over it is really fascinating because some of the the loudest voices, as it were, attacking the Allies for having committed some kind of war crime in the early period were people like uh, David Irving, were people who wanted to... Um, set up a kind of moral equivalence between what the Allies had done and what the Nazis, as he would say, were accused of doing or what the Nazis had done. Um, and so there, there was a question of kind of getting beyond that, beyond saying, um, well, you know, you were bad, so are you sort of thing, and two wrongs don't make a right, uh, in terms of the kind of historiographical debate. So it has, it sort of moved on from that, I hope. Um, but it's, it, I don't think it is still exactly, I, I don't think you could say it was everybody agrees one way or the other. And that comes out in Gary Sheffield's piece for us, that he says that the, the book he's reviewing, which is Sinclair Mackay's book, kind of general uh, history of it, um, doesn't get too deep into the ethical debate, but just calls it an atrocity. And he says he doesn't take into account enough what total war meant on all sides. To which you could also reply, total war was understood by the people who did it, but so was the idea of terror and of bombing for terror's sake. Everyone sees everyone's bookshelves on telly now. Um, and so you, someone saw Michael Gove's bookshelves and there was a David Irving book on it. And so it led to quite a tedious debate about whether you should even have a David Irving book or not and what it means to have books on your bookshelf, etc. which we won't get into now. But it possibly does connect with a, a very good piece we have by Linda Kinsler, which is about Auschwitz. It reviews lots of books, one including uh, The Volunteer by Jack Fairweather, which I have read and won the Costa Prize uh, this year. But she talks about Auschwitz and denial and the denial of, of genocide uh, in it. What, what, what struck you about the piece generally? Well, I, what struck me was, I mean, I think it's a really interesting and um, brilliantly written piece. I think what stri- strikes me is that there are always new ways of looking at the Holocaust and that really comes out. So not only have you got that uh, book that you mentioned, the uh, Jack Fairweather book, which tells this extraordinary story of this man who I never heard of before the book came out called Witold Pilecki, who infiltrated Auschwitz, Auschwitz and then escaped So he infiltrated in order to find out exactly what was going on and to be able to bring back first-hand testimony. And then he escaped. And then he wasn't really, uh, not exactly, he he was believed, but I don't think people took seriously what he said. They couldn't quite, I mean, Kinsler says they just couldn't really um, come to terms with this, I think. Well, even when, even when they, he said things like, 
they're doing what amounts to they're gassing Jewish people. They thought they were preparing for chemical warfare on the fronts. They, they, they didn't see it as genocide or they didn't let themselves see it as genocide until it was too late. Even though people were saying from, I think, 1941, bomb, please bomb Auschwitz. The prisoners were saying, please bomb Auschwitz because um, life there is not worth living. It's, it's, I mean, that, that, uh, the, the, the bombing Auschwitz thing is a kind of different, and that is a, another old debate. I've got a book on my shelf which called The Myth of Rescue by um, an author called Rubenstein. I mean, that's another difficult debate because it, it, what people argue about that is that they didn't really have the precision available to them to to do that. So even if it had been a strategic um, possibility, it wasn't really a tactical possibility. It wasn't very, it wasn't very easy to do because dropping bombs on precise places wasn't really what anyone was any good at. Um, And of course the Germans were extremely good at rebuilding things, especially as they used, you know, slave labor to do it. Um, there's a shocking thing that I didn't realise in the piece, which was that the SS didn't bother recording the murder of women in Auschwitz until 1942, the idea that these women were coming in from 1941 onwards and they weren't even regarded as worthy of... Because the other thing about Auschwitz was it was fantastically recorded, the horror, because of that that German bureaucracy that said, you know, people were counted in and counted out and there was a great record of the, the destruction and the death but not but well there not- was there wasn't there and i mean well part partly we we shouldn't be too certain because of course the records just might not have survived but it does seem does seem from from what she says and what the book that she's reviewing there says that 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 is true i mean it's very difficult to kind of get your head around because you've already got a group of people being treated not as people um and then so uh, the idea of um, having a subcategory of people who've already robbed of their humanity, let alone wanting to murder them all, is just very difficult to, to understand. But it is, it is a very, it's, it's always been a puzzle to me, that whole idea of the, the Nazi obsession with recording things. And I, I'm not sure how entirely widespread it was in places where, the kind of organisation was more slapdash or somewhere like Treblinka where it became this hideously, horrendously effective killing machine. Uh, But at the beginning, it was just an awful kind of carnage because it it was both badly organised and murderous. So I can't believe that they recorded everything very well there at the beginning. It was only when they kind of reset it and then it became this sort of conveyor belt there's um there's a line in 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 this same piece about um the psychoanalyst eddie devin's memoir which is i think it's just been published for the first time in english quite incredibly uh you know the man who gave us the concept of concentration camp syndrome and linda kintzler says dewin turns to fiction in order to tell the truth um i wonder how you feel about that as a historian it's a difficult one that isn't it but i think there are there are so many areas of experience that you can't um find records of and you can't put into kind of into words 
based on entirely on the facts in front of you. And to some extent, historians, when they're writing narrative, do that. Um, so I think as long as you're kind of aware of when things are being offered as a kind of fictionalized recreation, um, it doesn't it doesn't trouble me too much. But of course, in this area, you have to be very concerned because people make um, make play of these things and you know use them and twist them in ways that you know, you'd rather they didn't. Um, better leave it. But before we do, David, um, can you give us a good history book to read about the Second World War and a good history book to read not about the Second World War? <laughs> a recommendation for lockdown. Not the English rebel or Richard III, a ruler in his reputation. No, nothing like that. Well, let's start with um, uh, about the Second World War. Most books about the Second World War, especially these days, are incredibly long. Um, yeah. And I know some people like that. Um, but some of us in lockdown aren't much less busy than we were before lockdown. So I don't <laughs> think it's necessar necessarily the perfect time to recommend that. So um, I'm going to go for a book by John Grigg called 1943, The Victory That Never Was, which is a kind of, um, it's not quite a counterfactual, but it, it's about mistakes that prolong the war unnecessarily. And it, it um, takes in this whole stuff about, uh, among other things, about the strategic bombing campaign. And I mean, he he's very much comes down on the side of the idea that it was a war crime, uh, among other things. But he also talks about the conduct of the war and how Roosevelt and Churchill missed a chance, really, to um, to invade in 1943 rather than 44. That sounds um, really interesting. And one more. Well, a book I read at the end of last year um, was um, Christina Thompson's book, Sea People. It's about the Pacific Islands. So we're going as far back as we possibly can, really. Um, and their um, population by the Polynesians and how they managed to sail these extraordinarily long distances without any uh, modern uh, aids to do so. And it also encompasses the kind of the, the voyages of Captain Cook. And, oh, lovely. Um, and it's a really fascinating book and brilliantly written. It uh, has archaeology, it has contemporary stuff. It's highly recommended i thought the other day because i'm reading the brothers york which is a book about uh, richard richard the third have you read it i haven't i i, I have uh, read quite a lot of it by um thomas penn yeah it's my second favorite book about richard the third well uh, mine too <laughs> yes uh, <laughs> it's very good i i do i find the wars of the roses it's it is an, it's an interesting period is it not and, and if people are interested in that period they could read the brothers york or and it's up to them that or <laughs> And Richard III, a ruler and his reputation. Uh, David Horsepool, I feel that I feel that we've we've plugged enough of your books for one day. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to David Horsepool, Sue Stewart Smith, and Ian Baruma. Make sure you subscribe to the TLS and get all sorts of great stuff. This week it looks at different types of life writing, has Will Self grumbling about how much writers get paid, and tells us what lockdown is like in Goa. Next week we turn our minds to philosophy. Always a chance for Thea and I to shine. Until then, from us both, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.